Good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Brett Hastings. I'm the youth director here at Grace Church. I'm filling in for Travis this week as he uh, really just needs a break. He's under a heavy teaching load. He's teaching like five or six times a week some weeks. And so he oftentimes just needs just needs a week off. For a text this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. What we're going to hear from Peter this morning is very important for all of us. Peter tells us how we are to think in the Christian life and how we are to live in the Christian life. We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about how to think in the Christian life because I believe that portion often gets overlooked more than how we are to live. So we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about how we are to think. Oftentimes we think we're doing a lot better than we really are. We think our minds are in a good state when they're really not because we don't spend time examining our thoughts. Just consider this. Let me ask you this. How many of you feel stressed out regularly? Rarely, never, sometimes, frequently. How often do you feel stressed? Gallup did a poll and they found that upwards of 80% of Americans feel stressed out frequently. And according to the Brain Research Institute, over 70% of all people exhibit signs of stress. Symptoms of stress resulting in bad health. Today we are going to examine Peter's prescription for the early church on how to think. Because he is writing to a people who no doubt had far more reasons to be stressed than we do today. So we're going to look at how to think through all of that. And then finally we're just going to finish up by talking about the outworkings of that in our daily lives. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." obtaining the outcome of your faith and salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that, you, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Before we get into the text, I'm going to do a little bit of background to set up the book. Um, I'm not going to talk much about Peter as the author because you got a whole sermon last week on Peter and you've got a whole nother sermon on the next couple weeks that Travis is going to do on the person of Peter. So it's going to be far more comprehensive than anything I could tell you about Peter. But Peter did write the book and I'm going to spend a little bit more time just setting up the book for the time and the setting that it took place. It's most likely that First Peter was written sometime in A.D. 64 after the great persecution broke out against Christians under Emperor Nero. And Nero was quite the character if you read the history books. Philip Schaff summarizes the life of Nero as this in a history of the Christian church. He says, and I quote, We read his life, that is Nero, with mingled feelings of contempt for his folly and horror of his wickedness. The world was to him a comedy and a tragedy, in which he was to be the chief actor. He had an insane passion for popular applause. He played on the lyre. He sung his odes at supper. He drove his chariots in the circus. He appeared as a mimic on the stage and compelled men of highest rank to represent him in dramas or in tableau, the obscenest of the Greek myths. But the comedian was soon surpassed by the tragedian. He heaped crime upon crime until he became a proverbial monster of iniquity. End quote. The crime spoken of there refer to Nero murder, murdering his brother Britannicus, his first wife Octavia, his mother Agrippina, his second wife Papea, his teacher and most trusted advisor Seneca, and many other close Roman officials. He was obsessed with himself and what he wanted, 
He was obsessed with his ego. He cared nothing about anyone else, only his own glory, and he was willing to kill anybody that got in the way of that. So why did Nero persecute the Christians? Well, on the night of July 18th, A.D. 64, the most disastrous fire broke out in the city of Rome. Enraged by the wind, firemen and soldiers could not contain it. It burned with fury for six days and seven nights. And just when they thought they had contained it, it broke out in another portion of the city for three more days. It utterly destroyed the city. The city of Rome was divided into 14 districts, and only four of them were unaffected some of them completely destroyed. It destroyed the physical buildings. It killed many people. But it also destroyed the culture of the city. Major temples were reduced to ash. Personal household idols and shrines were destroyed. They were destroyed and revealed for what they were. They were powerless. And the people were utterly devastated as their whole worldview and culture were turned upside down. Initial rumors of the source of the fire pointed directly to Nero himself. Everyone was familiar with Nero's narcissistic mindset, and they likely knew of Nero's desire to rebuild Rome in a more magnificent way. He also wanted to rename it Neropolis, and many believed this was his way of accomplishing that burning down the city to rebuild it. Nero was no dummy. He knew that even he could not withstand such rumors. So in order to deflect suspicion off of him, Nero immediately spread word that it was the Christians who started the fires. This took the blame off of Nero, and no doubt it would serve as sadistic entertainment for him as it played out on the world stage. We all know how an infuriated mob behaves. They do not operate out of reason. They just operate out of a desire for vengeance. Someone had to pay. They didn't care who it was. And so the persecution of the Christians began. Tacitus, a Jewish historian, records that a vast multitude of Christians were slain in the worst kind of ways. Some were crucified Others were thrown in the arena to beasts to be devoured. But the climax of cruelty came one night at the Imperial Garden where Christian men, they were covered in a thick accelerant. They were made up like candles and they were lit to illuminate, illuminate Nero as he dressed himself fantastically imposed on a chariot. So it was this level of persecution that drove Christians out of Rome out into all the districts that Peter mentioned in that book that we read. But even as they were driven out, they would still be persecuted. But to be close to Rome, where Nero was heavily persecuting Christians, was almost certain death. It's likely that it is shortly after this that Peter pens this epistle that we're looking at today. And it's no wonder that the main theme throughout the book is suffering and setting one's hope on the coming of Christ. Peter was writing to Christians undergoing great trials. At any moment, their family could be arrested or killed. 
And while we do not endure trials anywhere close to the severity that they did, there are many principles we can learn here in Peter's letter to deal with the trials and worries that we have. If you're looking at your outline, if you turn your attention to that in your bulletin, there are two principles we're going to examine in order that we might um, live our lives the way that God wants us to. Point number one, as elect believers of God, we are to think in light of the grace of God. And point two, we are to live in light of the grace of God. So let's jump into that first point. We're to think in light of the grace of God. And we're going to start in 1 Peter 1.13. Verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main subject and verb in here is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on grace. Those other two passages, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, they're modifying participial phrases. And if you're not familiar with terms of grammar, modifying participial phrases just means that they're not important, so we're not going to talk about them. Right, Chuck? I put that in there just for you. Chuck will give me a grammar lesson later. No, that just means those two phrases, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, they're modifying how we are to fully set our hope on the grace of God. They speak of how we are to think as believers in light of the grace of God in order to keep our hope fully in Him. Peter said in verse 3 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that we did not receive an inheritance that would perish, but one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One that would never pass away. He tells the recipients of his letter to rejoice in this, even if they're going through trials at the moment, because it will make their faith more precious than gold. And then Peter, in verse 13, he tells them to set your hope fully on the grace of God brought to you, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He exhorts them to set their hope fully on the grace that they have received and will receive at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to hope? Let's look at what it means to hope real quickly. First, hope, it's in our thinking. It's what we know and what we believe. It flows out into our actions, but it is sourced in our minds and in our hearts. It's what we think and it's what we believe. In the New Testament, hope has three elements. An expectation of the future, trust, and patient waiting. First, that aspect of hope as expectation of the future This is not really an issue for the recipients of Peter's letter because they were undergoing great trials. They were longing for the coming of Christ to relieve their trials. They were waiting expectantly. Unfortunately, as Americans, we we are not forced to look to the coming of Christ through trials. We We don't endure near the trials that this early church did. 
we're often driven to hope in the coming of Christ because of the trials we do endure. And instead of hope being the foundation we stand on, it's often a life preserver that we grab onto when we are weary and frail. The purpose of hope is to hold us up when we are beaten down and weary, but it is not for the moment. It is the foundation that we are to stand on so that we are unshaken when trials come. And that's why Peter starts his book with this. Hope is the foundation we are to stand on in order that we might be unshaken during times of trial. And Peter wrote that to sustain these people that he's writing to. This expectant waiting is very important because it not only sustains us, but it drives our thinking unto action. My wife and I, we hope to move to California this summer. And if that was not something that we were that was constantly on our minds that we were thinking about, we would not be acting in order to bring that about. That expectant hope that we have for that, it drives our thinking unto action. And the fact that Christ is coming back soon must be on our minds regularly, driving our thoughts and actions so we do not grow complacent. So we have to wait expectantly. We also have to trust. The meaning of hope in our modern world is very similar. There is an expectation for the future. There is a trust, although it's some nebulous force itself, odds. But there is no patient waiting in our world. People who hope to get a better job or hope to find a spouse will do anything to shortcut that to get what they want because they ultimately think it's up to them to bring about the things that they hope for. The world's trust in hope is trust in self. And this is the polar opposite of our hope in God. We trust in the omnipotent creator and sustainer of all things who's working all things together in his perfect time. We don't trust in some nebulous force or self, but in the all-knowing God who is faithful to bring about his promises. And we have a recorded track record in his Bible of 2,000 plus years of faithfulness. There's nothing in no one else better to trust than in him. Our foundation for trust is as Peter said in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God not only started the work in us and called us, but it is by God's power that we remain faithful. We are kept by God and ready for Christ's return. So our trust is not in self. Our trust is in God. There's also that third pesky part of hope that we really don't like, the patient waiting. Waiting patiently reveals what our trust is actually in. If we don't wait patiently and we take things into our own hands, 
then our trust is not in God, it's in ourself. Like Abram and Sarai who expected a son, they grew weary of waiting and they took things into their own hands because they did not trust God, they did not wait patiently and they committed sin by doing that. When we short-circuit waiting patiently, we're no longer operating out of hope but self-reliance. So we must wait expectantly, we must trust God, and we must wait patiently. And this implies that we do so until the coming of Christ every step of the way. Every day we trust God every step of the way, waiting patiently. Peter adds something to the command. He doesn't just say hope. He says hope fully on the grace of God. Fully on the grace of God. That word fully can also be translated as completely or perfectly. So what does it mean to hope fully, completely, or perfectly? And I think those two modifying participial phrases describe that very thing. So those two clarifying phrases I mentioned earlier, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded reveal how we are to hope perfectly. You can make those two, two sub-points if you want. Sub-point A, unhinder your mind. Unhinder your mind. Peter says there, preparing your minds for action. That's the ESV version. Many other older versions, such as the King James Version, NASB Version, they translate that as, gird up the loins of your mind. And for most modern day readers, that doesn't clarify anything but it does give us a little bit of insight so I can help explain it. We have to put ourselves back in the day that Peter was writing this. When Peter was writing this, the common outer garment for men and women was a large robe-like garment. Only you can't think of a modern robe that's hemmed and trimmed nicely and fit nicely. In ancient days, those pieces of clothing were more like a long blanket. They might have armholes cut in them, maybe a head hole to hold them up, but that was about it. A lot of times they were held up just by being wrapped around the body and tied with a belt. That's the kind of garment Peter is talking about here. It's long and it's loose. It hinders any kind of action. It would hinder any kind of action, but it was extremely important to have because it protected one from the heat of the sun, the cool of the night, the wind-blown sand, it was a great protection from the elements. But if you wanted to do any kind of work, or if you wanted to travel at all with a garment like this on, you would have to gird up your loins, which meant you would take all the long, loose parts of the robe and you would tuck them up and tie them with your belt. That way you were unhindered in your action. This would prepare you for action. If you had the garment, you needed it, but it was tied up and you were ready for action. This is what Peter is referring to when he says, gird up your loins, prepare yourself for action. Except he says, gird up the loins of your mind. So how does this translate from tying up loose parts of a garment to our mind? 
And it's extremely important that we understand how this translates and the implications for our minds, because if we don't prepare our minds before we try to do everything else Peter commends us to do in this chapter, we will be doing it in futility. Like someone in Peter's day was useless for action without tying up his robes, so the modern day Christian is hindered in everyday life if he fails to prepare his mind for action. So the principle is that our minds need to be unhindered, not weighing us down, not getting caught on random things. Our minds need to be unhindered. We unhinder our minds by tying up all the loose ends. All of our affections, our ambitions, and desires must be bound by a godly restraint. The belt of truth in Ephesians 6. Same idea there with the soldier. All our affections, ambitions, and desires must be bound by a godly restraint or they will turn to worries and hinder us and fully hoping and trusting God. What then are some of the implications for us to gird up the loins of our mind? Preparing our minds in the context of trials things that are weighing us down, going on in our life. As I already mentioned, I believe the greatest hindrance to the American mind is what we have grown to call stress. But what is stress? How many times when you ask someone what's wrong, they answer by, it's just stress, I'll, I'll get through it, I'll work it out, I'm fine, I'm just stressed out. We all do it. We act like it's a normal part of life just to grit our teeth and get through. Look, as believers, we must use biblical terms to define our world. And stress is not a biblical term. First of all, stress is a symptom of a root problem. We are stressed because of other things going on around us. As we read in Psalm 32, verse 4, David said, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And he was saying that because of his unconfessed sin. The weight that we feel is God's heavy hand upon us because oftentimes of unconfessed sin. If you think long and hard, you can trace the root problem resulting in stress to sin. And if you trace it out more specifically, you'll find that a very high percentage of that sin is a sin of unbelief and distrust in God. Peter commended the people he was writing to to put their trust in God when they could be imprisoned and killed. Something much more difficult than we have to do today. The research from the Brain Institute I already cited went on to report that the top four causes of stress are, number one, job pressures. If you trace that out, you could trace it to an unbelief in God to help you get the job done, maybe laziness and lack of planning, or fear of man, which is just another form of unbelief in God. Number two on their list was money, which is just a distrust in God to provide or maybe you sinfully, impulsively bought a bunch of stuff you didn't have the money for, and now you don't trust God to provide. Number three is health. Distrust in God's sovereign 
plan. Number four is relationships. And this is just more of the same distrust. Lee talked about this yesterday morning at the men's, the STM training. When we've got relationships that in our lives that are at odds, we have to trust God. We have to be faithful to do what He's called us to do, but we have to trust God to work those things out. There's so many things that cause us stress, that cause weight on our minds, and that's because we have unconfessed sin, and God is weighing on our minds to bring that to light in us. So if we're going to clear our minds, we must first recognize stress for what it is, and that's a symptom of a much greater problem. We can't buy into the world's view of stress as a normal part of life because then we will use their methods to cope with it. And you know what their methods to cope with stress, to alleviate stress are? Take some me time. You need some time for yourself. Take a vacation. Get away from the things that cause you stress. Only there's a huge problem with that because your source of stress is not your job, your money, your kids, your family. The source of your problem is sin and you cannot get away from that by going on vacation. On a more day-to-day occasion, because we can't all go on vacation all the time to get away from our stress, most Americans try to relieve stress by getting me time in front of a screen. We try to escape, distract ourselves by watching TV, surfing the internet, shopping, playing video games. The irony of that is, media overload was number six on the list of the greatest causes of stress. So if you find refuge or escape through some form of media entertainment, even the world knows that that doesn't work. Research has proven that that has the opposite effect. So if we're stressed out, what do we do? If we are anxious and worried about life and it's weighing us down, what do we do? You volunteer at church more? Do more? No. Some people do that, but no. We must recognize the source of our stress as the sin that it is. We must confess it to God and ask him to help us trust him. Otherwise, we will be great at identifying with David when he says, my bones waste away. For example, Kayla and I already mentioned this. We look toward moving to California to go to seminary. I need a job. We need a place to live. We have a hundred things to get done at the house. We have to do this, that, ten more things. There is a lot to weigh on my mind, and it has. There have been many things that I have been worried about, but I've learned to stop and confess that sin for what it is and ask God to help me trust Him. And look, at this point in my life, This is a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute battle in my mind. It's like trying to clean your house with little kids. Many of you moms know this. You clean up one room and you go to the next room and five minutes you come back and it is absolutely destroyed again. It's the same way with worries. We can confess it, we can clear our minds of it, and we can turn around two seconds later and there's that angst in our soul again and we have to just stop and confess again, and ask God to help us trust Him. It's like weeding a garden. There's going to be constantly popping up and we have to constantly pull them out. 
It's not something that happens once a month. You confess your sin and you're done, especially when it comes with worry. Specific times in our life when we are, have a lot going on, it's a minute-by-minute minute battle. Peter speaks of this plainly in verses 6 and 7, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, humble yourselves. And he goes on to say, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We have to humble ourselves and be willing to confess our sin to God. And God is gracious. We can cast all of our cares upon him and he is faithful Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 most of you are familiar with this. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have a gracious God who will take all our anxieties and worries if we just confess them and cast them upon Him. Don't identify with the world and distract yourself and try to avoid it. Confess it for the sin that it is and ask Christ to help you trust Him more and more each and every day. We fully expect Christ to come back, but trusting and waiting patiently in the everyday affairs is a constant battle. We also have to grow in our ability to detect when we are distrusting God because oftentimes we don't recognize it ourselves. We distract ourselves without even really knowing it. It's in our nature to distract ourselves instead of dealing with our problems. So each one of us, we need to grow in our own ability to recognize the symptoms of stress in our life, not run to distraction, but deal with those things. We must also grow in helping one another identify symptoms and tendencies that they have in their life. Because the fact that you and I need to deal with sin in our life is more often than not found in how we act towards other people and other people are really good about finding those things before we do. We're blind to our own sin. Wives and husbands especially, you know that you can spot when your spouse has something weighing on them often before they can. Maybe they get touchy. The smallest thing upsets them. They're distracted. We have to help them and talk to them about those things. I have the passive personality that hates conflict, and so I have a tendency to avoid asking my wife when I sense things are bothering her because there's a good chance it's something I've done that's bothering her. And I want to avoid that conflict but for those of you that are younger that haven't learned this yet, that inevitably leads to conflict. If you try to avoid conflict, it inevitably leads to more conflict. So whether it's a spouse or a friend, you have to ask about those things when you see it in their life, things that are bothering them. It's not helpful to overlook it and to show them grace, as it's often called. It's not showing them grace, but leaving them in a current unhealthy state. They could be in a sin of unbelief against God and not even realize it. But if you draw that out, you can help them, talk them through that and help them out of that state that they're in. 
It's very appropriate and gracious and loving when you see someone exhibiting signs, symptoms of stress, to just talk to them about it. Americans especially are very willing to admit when they're stressed out. So we just have to talk to them about that, dig a little deeper and help them flesh out the root sin that is causing it. So we must help each other identify and deal with the things going on in our lives that need girding up in our minds. If it's worry or anxiety, distrusting God, we must recognize that for what it is and confess it and ask God to help us trust him each and every day more and more. Most of this time, most of the time, it's not ladies who struggle with this. Most of the time, it's guys that are the ones that don't like to talk as much. And so husbands especially, you can't ignore your wife. You must engage her. Don't follow my bad example. Learn from me. Engage her when things are bothering her. I know most of us would like to steer clear of a woman's mind but men, 1 Peter 3.7, men are called to know their wives in an understanding way. And that means we have to help them think through things. If we don't understand them, we can't help them. And if we haven't thought through the things on our, in our own mind, we can't help them. We also can't be too proud to engage other men in this either. We must be willing to be vulnerable ourselves. This is something I am not good at, but by God's grace, I'm being strengthened each and every day. So don't neglect to clear your own mind, to unhinder your mind. Don't neglect the people around you when you see those things in them that indicate deeper heart issues. Because if we fail to prepare our minds for action, tie up all the loose ends that hinder us, we will fail to live the Christian life effectively. If you fail to unhinder your mind, you'll be like trying to run a race with a giant sail of a robe on. And that does not get you very far. You'll be doing it in futility and it will wear you out much quicker. In order for us to keep our hope fully on Christ, we need to clear our mind of distraction and prepare our minds for action. And the next guardrail to keep us hoping fully in the grace of God, subpoint B, is to stabilize your mind. Subpoint B is stabilize your mind. Verse 13 says, being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. Being sober-minded in the New Testament is always metaphorical. It doesn't just say be sober, it says be sober-minded. It's not talking about refraining from drink so you have a clear mind it's referring to the clarity of mind in a metaphorical way sober-minded here has the idea of one being self-controlled so as to be unaffected by negative influences having a sober assessment of self and the world around him you're standing firm looking at the world for what it is and you see that clearly John MacArthur says that this kind of sober assessment and self-control is, and I quote, being in charge of one's priorities and balancing one's life so as not to be subject to the controlling and corrupting influences of the flesh's allurements. End quote. 
being in charge of one's priorities and balancing one's life so as not to be subject to the controlling and corrupting influences of the flesh's allurements. After we have prepared our minds for action, we must maintain a clear mind by stabilizing our mind, by prioritizing and balancing our life so as not to be influenced by the flesh. Someone who's intoxicated is not thinking clearly. They're not prioritizing, organizing, balancing their life in any way whatsoever. This person is just fumbling around without direction, doing whatever he desires in the moment. That's the complete opposite of what we're called to. We're to prioritize and balance our life, and this begins in the mind and the heart. Once again, this implies that we take time to think through things. You cannot expect to have an appropriately balanced life without thinking through what the priorities are or the balance should be. Many people before the holiday season especially will prioritize and think through the balance of trying to eat right. If you want to eat a whole pie on Thanksgiving Day, you have to sacrifice something else. You have to give up something else to maintain and promote a healthy diet. You have to prioritize and balance. We understand this in many areas of life. It's the same way with our spiritual lives. For the Christian, this spiritually refers to the influence of the Spirit and the Word on one hand and the world and the flesh on the other. Flip over real quick with me to Ephesians 5.15. There must be a balance in our lives or we will not be stable in mind. We'll be intoxicated by the influence of the world. Paul wrote about this in several of his letters to the churches. We're going to look at a few of them just briefly just to get the principle out of there. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as wise, but not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time. There's prioritize right there. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now turn over a book to Philippians chapter 4. So Paul told them there, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the influence of the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. Those are all right influences. Philippians 4, 4-9 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Flip over one more book to Colossians chapter 3. Again, Paul lays out the same thing, priorities and influences on our mind. We need to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. Not being anxious. Colossians 3, 15-17 says, And let the peace of Christ dwell, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In all of these, Paul commends the saints to think and live correctly. But in those verses, the thinking unto action is informed by the Spirit and the Word. The things Paul taught, singing hymns among the saints. The Spirit and the Word are the influences that will produce right thinking and stability in the Christian life. If we don't tie up the things hindering us in our minds, we won't be sober to prioritize our life and protect our mind from harmful influences. When we're sober-minded to prioritize our life, we will prioritize the Word above everything else because it is the Word that the Spirit uses to affect and sanctify us, to renew our minds, making us stable in mind unto good works. It's the influence of the Word that takes root in our minds and flows out into every area of our lives. And we have to prioritize it and balance the other influences that we take in. Watching TV is okay, but there must be a balance of influence in your life. If you are the average American watching more than five hours of TV a day, and the only teaching you get on Sundays and Wednesdays, that's not a good balance. I'm not going to be prescriptive here and tell you how much TV to watch, but five hours a day is probably a little too much. We have to think about the balance. If you want to live a holy life, if you want to be sanctified, you have to be influenced by the Word more than the world and the flesh. And this is not going to happen by osmosis as the Bible sits on our shelf and we sit on the couch. We have to pick it up, read it, subject ourselves to it, study it, more teaching, coming to church every opportunity we get. We're constantly being influenced by something. Let it be the Word that has the majority of influence in our life. So be self-controlled, sober, to prioritize and balance your life. You, or you won't be stable in your thinking. You won't be able to keep your hope fully in the grace of God if you do not think soberly. If you don't have your priorities right, the balance of influence in your life right. 
living the Christian life will be much more difficult if we do not unhinder our minds and stabilize our minds the way Paul tells us to. There's a lot wrapped up in that one verse, but if we don't think clearly, like I said, we will be trying to run the race of this life, as Paul called it, dragging a bunch of mental baggage while we are intoxicated by the influences of the world. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember too many overweight, intoxicated runners winning the Olympics. It just doesn't happen. But that's the picture we're given here. There are many spiritually hindered, overweight, intoxicated Christians who are nearly utterly useless in the Christian life because of the influence that the world has on them and because of the worries on their mind. So we unhinder and stabilize our minds in order to hope fully on the grace of God. So we think in light of the grace of God in order to point number two, live in light of the grace of God. We think in order to live. Peter goes on to tell his audience how to live in light of the grace of God. And we don't have time to get into any of these, but it's important that we scan through them real quick just to wrap up. The first thing that Peter says to avoid altogether is conforming to old sinful patterns in verse 14. If you want to make this a sub-point, you can do so. You can call it, do not conform to the flesh. Do not conform to the flesh. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Whether they are sinful ways of thinking or acting, we are not to think and act in accordance with our flesh. That's what all those verses we read from Paul in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians referred to. Acting according to the Word and the Spirit. We do not conform, but we stand in opposition to the old ways of thinking and acting. And that means when we realize that we're worrying about something and we're in sin, we need to repent of that and recognize that that is not an appropriate way to think and live. We cannot think and live as we did yesterday as we grow more and more in what the Bible tells us. We are not to conform to the old ways of the flesh. Rather, subpoint B, we are to conform to Christ. Conform to Christ. And in the rest of the chapter, Peter commands three things for believers to do conforming to Christ. Two of those things are in verses 15 to 17. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So we're called to be holy as he is holy, set apart from everything else. We're to conduct ourselves in fear. That is to say, we are to strive to be set apart in every aspect of life. Just as the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, God commanded them to be holy as he was holy, to be set apart from all the nations to stand out among the nations. They were not to look like the people around them. 
They were to look different. And can you imagine what, how different we would look if we were unhindered by the worries of this world? Especially this day and age, people are worried about every little thing. This is one of the greatest ways that we can stand out as Christians is that we are not worried about the things in this life. Our minds are not hindered by who's president, what laws they might pass tomorrow, because God sits on His throne. We would look so much more different from the world if we were unhindered by the same things that they are. If we didn't worry about the same things they did. So we also have to live in fear of God. That is, live to please God in every aspect of our life. We don't fear men. We fear God. We live to please Him. We do not live to please other men. These two things, being holy and fearing God, could be put in the category of loving God. And the final command in this chapter is in verse 22, which reads, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the last thing Peter commands in chapter 1 for the saints to do. Love one another. Why does he save that command until last? Well, because if you don't think correctly, if you don't think the way Peter commands, you will fail to love God and you will fail to love others. If you fail to think the way Peter prescribes here, you will fail to live according to the Word of God. Many people recognize sin in their life, the way they're acting towards other people. And instead of going back and repenting of the the heart issues, the thoughts that led them there, they just want to pray that God would help them be more patient. That God would help them be kind to other people or not get angry when those are not just outward actions, there are heart issues and we have to go back to our thinking and our hearts and figure out what the root sin is. And that's what Peter lays out here. You have to start in your thinking and move towards your actions, towards loving God and then loving others. So Peter lays out a very important order here for us. When we fail to live in light of the grace of God, it's because we are failing to think in light of the grace of God. And if we do not recognize that and return and fix our thinking, ask God to fix our thinking, we will be floundering and drowning in our efforts to live the way God wants us to. When we fail to love God and others, we must examine the root sin in our minds and hearts if we have any hope to be sanctified and grow. So in conclusion, we must think in light of the grace of God. We must unhinder our minds. We must be sober and stable in our minds. And then and only then will we be unhindered to live effectively the way God has called us to and the rest of the commands that Peter lays out in his book. And this is all tied up in the last portion, Ephesians 
1, the last part of that passage there in chapter 1, or 1 Peter, I'm sorry, not Ephesians. 1 Peter 1, Peter finishes by saying, that you have been born again in verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's what we're to look to. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We must always return to that. That is what the main influence in our life should be because it is unchanging. It is living and abiding. And it was the good news preached to us at the start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so gracious to us You sent your Son to die on the cross for us. He endured the greatest trial anyone could ever know. And yet he lived perfectly in all these things. He was not worried. He was not anxious. He did not distrust you in anything. And I pray that you would continually remind us of his sacrifice for us as is laid out in 1 Peter chapter 1 there as well. Help us to remember your sacrifice for us, Lord, that you started a work in us and you will keep us, you will hold us. No matter what's going on in the world, you will hold us. Help us to trust you as we endure trials, as there are just random worries that come to our minds about family and friends and work. Help us to recognize those things for what they are. Help us to be bold and engage other people and help them think through those things as well. Lord, we thank you and praise you so much for your word. So gracious that you gave it to us to teach us how to deal with our problem of sin. Continually teach us draw us close to you. Give us a greater and greater desire to please you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.